Hello and welcome to this episode of TASME Time, Talks in Medical Education. I'm Oliver, an internal medicine trainee based in London. And I'm Mark, uh, a teaching fellow based in the northeast of England in Sunderland. Welcome to the podcast, Mark. It's great to have you on the team. Um, how has your week been? Thanks, Ollie. Uh, really excited to get started um, with the podcast team and hopefully many more to come. Um, the week's been really good. It's been um, the first week of December, so the Christmas tree is up. Um, we're doing a little bit of Christmas shopping and had the excitement of snow uh, in the northeast here, which brought everything to a standstill. Um, how was your week? That's exciting. Um, we've had no snow down in London. Um, we My week's been all right. It's the end of one job, we're getting ready to move on to another. So all of the stresses of that situation, but uh, should be a nice new challenge. I'm trying to be optimistic about the change. <laughs> Optimism is key. Um, thanks, Ollie. So today we're joined by Michael Atkinson, who is the co-chair of ASME's Mindfulness in Medical Education Special Interest Group. And he's also a senior lecturer in medical education at the University of Sunderland, where I'm based. Um, Michael leads and um, teaches on both the Master's in Medical Education programme and the Postgraduate Certificate of Medi- Medical Education. Um, welcome to TASME Time, Michael. It's great to have you with us. Um, to get us so- started and as a way of introducing yourself, could you tell us a bit, little bit about your career and um, how you first got involved in mindfulness? Thank you and I uh, appreciate you inviting me to do this podcast with you. Um, looking forward to having a chat. Um, so just in terms of my background in mindfulness, yeah, I've been practising mind what we call mindfulness meditation for maybe 23 24 years now and um teaching it formally for about seven or eight years and um, i came into it around 2000 and in a buddhist context and got heavily involved a lot of retreats um learned a great deal um eventually um i embraced a more secular form of mindfulness and um thought it would be much more inclusive and accessible to people and um yeah started teaching from a secular perspective pretty much and um yeah and uh it's just a really major thing in my life and has been for a long time and it's brought me a huge amount of benefit yeah great and how did that um come into part of your professional role yeah, I mean, mainly, I mean, I was I had done various um, little workshops and um, sessions for students and staff throughout my education and throughout my kind of professional life in higher education. Um, but it was when I was at Newcastle University in my previous role where I taught um, on the Masters in Medical Education there. Um, I just set up a, a small lunchtime group um, with staff and... Um, after a while, it just started to kind of snowball a bit. I started to get asked to do this, that, and the other around campus. Um, it became kind of um, part of the well-being program for postgraduate researchers, and then it became open to all staff and all students. And then there was some funding to train me as a mindfulness-based stress reduction uh, teacher, uh, and to help uh, with postgraduate researchers at the university. And then 
um, after doing that training, I pretty much uh, offered, uh, we offered that training to anybody at the university after I had, a, had done an initial, uh, an initial course for the project. Um, and so I ran 10 eight-week MB, what are called MBSR courses at the university. Um, and uh, the last one I did was for medical students. Um, but otherwise, they were just for anybody at the university, staff and students, and it was it was free as well. So, yeah. Um, so that was um, my work at Newcastle University. And when I moved to uh, the University of Sunderland now, working in the School of Medicine there, um, I've introduced it, introduced it to year one medical students as a lecture. Uh, there's a module called Mind and Brain. And uh, as I teach on the Masters, we've been able to introduce it to a couple of modules um, where we talk about kind of mindfulness and self-care in relation to kind of clinical leadership and um, and other themes. And um, yeah, just generally um, that interest seems to kind of keep growing. Uh, no mm. matter where I go, it's, there's always somebody wants uh, a little bit of a bit of mindfulness somewhere. It's really gaining quite a lot of traction and becoming very mainstream in medical field and medical education generally. So I think it piques people's interest. So yeah, I've been very um, lucky to be able to kind of offer that to people as well, you know. Thanks for that, Michael. That's really sort of interesting to hear a bit of your journey um, and also sort of describing what I've noticed myself, because I was only a sort of early career educator, but certainly my time as a, as a student, I noticed that mindfulness was becoming more and more prominent um, both sort of internally and externally of the sort of medical curriculum. For those who maybe don't know um, necessarily what mindfulness is, are you all right to give us a little bit of a description as to what maybe mindfulness is and what mindfulness isn't? Yeah, good, um, good point. And, 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 and the latter is quite a good way to come into it. What, what does it mean not to be mindful? And what often comes up for people, I mean, this is an everyday term, of course, we talk about being mindful, don't we, just generally without thinking about meditation and uh, the practice of mindfulness. Um, but when we think about being unmindful, we think about being inattentive, um, about making mistakes, um, not really um, paying attention to people when we're talking to them. Uh, we're not really on it, on our work. We're not focusing um, we're not particularly open to our experience. Maybe we're on what we would call automatic pilot, just kind of drifting through life and not really knowing um, <clears throat> kind of where we're going to some extent. We're just pretty much just being carrying ourselves through life without really realizing um, about the journey and, and what's happening in the moment. And <clears throat> so that's in a way an inherent part of I guess brain activity, mind activity is that it is a very um, impulsive organ of the body, but also the body in general. Um, uh, we are very prone to distraction and uh, our minds wander very, very easily. So mindfulness really is um, underneath all of that, what we would call noise of thoughts and feelings and impulses is a kind of stillness. It's all there already present within us quite deep within us and you could say that mindfulness is um, essentially a natural quality that we have all possessed at some point but it takes practice to regain it um, or to reconnect with it so just thinking about um, a child maybe four or five year old they're not worrying about their finances or 
what's happening tomorrow or yesterday. They're just there, just really present in the moment. And that is already there within us. And so it's a bit like peeling the layers off the onion, if you like. We use meditation practices, and there's a whole range of different practices, to just peel the layers of thoughts and feelings and impulses and get underneath that and just reconnect with that natural presence. Another aspect of mindfulness is that um, <clears throat> a kind of open-heartedness and a, a willingness or a capacity, if you like, to embrace our experience, no matter how uncomfortable or exciting it might be. Um, it's very obvious when people first come to practice mindfulness that they really struggle just to be present with their feelings, present with their thoughts. And um, often people's impulses really is to escape from that and keep themselves busy, drink, whatever, do anything to distract themselves from actually that, that those feelings that kind of bubble up in our everyday life. And, and so it's, it's about leaning in to experience and embracing the whole spectrum of experience because if we don't what we tend to do is narrow down our experience overall if we just focus on the pleasant if we're kind of hedonistic for example although we, we're kind of reducing uh, and, and avoiding our suffering and pain and all of that what we're doing there is actually reducing our overall capacity to be open to our experience and when you think about what I mentioned there about presence, being able to kind of just keep guiding our attention back into the actual actuality of the present might feel a bit uncomfortable to begin with, but that's in a way a key part of me mindfulness meditation practice is to keep doing that, keep bringing ourselves back, noticing our tendency to escape and then keep gently and kindly bringing ourselves back to the present moment until we become comfortable with the uncomfortable. So that's a big part of, of mindfulness, developing compassion, developing um, empathy and kindness and qualities like that, developing the imagination, um, being able to tune in to our experience, no matter what it is in our body or our, our, our external experience. Um, and yeah, just we use what we call meditation practice to cultivate those qualities of mindfulness, to reconnect with them. And for many people, that is a regular practice. It might be daily, it might be fairly regular, but it is about just taking stock, taking those pauses in your day, in your week, um, to just reconnect with yourself, reconnect with others, take stock, get some perspective, and then move on. If we don't do that, we might find that we don't realize what's really going on for, for ourselves. So if you just think about stress and burnout, for example, which is particularly prevalent in healthcare practice, often people might not realize they're stressed or burnt out until they get to quite far down the line with it. Um, they're, <clears throat> they've been pushing it away, they've been hiding it away, suppressing it to a large extent just by keeping busy or whatever the people do and um, it's a bit too late sometimes it, 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 it can uh, overtake us at some point so being able to bring awareness to our body bring awareness to our thoughts and feelings and our experiences generally helps us to really notice those early warning signs 
and to keep tuning into them, to recognize them and to take the action necessary to readjust the way we live, readjust our working life, integrate more healthy habits into our life. So that's a little bit of a taste of some of the kind of different angles I would come in at in terms of what mindfulness is. So I hope that helps. Yeah, thanks, Michael. Really interesting. And I think a lot of it speaks quite close to, um, as you sort of touched on, experiences that um, medical students and junior doctors have about just being aware of um, sort of looking after yourself. And it's something that we can be quite guilty of is not looking after ourselves. And actually mindfulness can can aid with that. Um, and I think something that I really struggle with, um, if I was... Uh, specifically remember at an event in medical school where we were um had a mindfulness um sort of practice um and something I've really struggled with was, was sort of keeping my mind focused and that bit about being present and not being distracted um was something I really struggled with and this idea of 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 other stresses in your life suddenly flooding your mind I think is is something that's really um really difficult to control um but as you say persisting with mindfulness practice and um and, and sort of trying to do a little bit sort of every day or every other day and getting into the habit of doing it is, is a massive part of it. And I just find that really interesting. Thank you. Thank you. You also mentioned sort of um, how mindfulness can help with um, being caring and empathetic, which I think are quite evidently important qualities that I think we would want in a medical student, a, a, a qualified doctor or any healthcare professional, as well as just sort of everybody um what what uh, are there any more applications to for mindfulness in medical education yeah one of the things that is often said about mindfulness is that it's adaptable to almost everything that we do or just anything that we do in our life i think one way to frame this one way to think about this is um uh, looking through two lenses, we often talk about two modes of being. One is being mode and one is doing mode. So the doing mode is the mode that a lot of people are in generally in their day-to-day lives. They're caught up in getting from A to B. Um, they do things to achieve things, problem solve. Um, they um, are on automatic pilot, um, as I said earlier. So having that kind of sense of you're just doing everything quite automatically, you're not really fully engaging with life as it is. Um, And that's the kind of doing mode, you know, being on our phones, constantly distracted in some kind of form or other. And then there's the being mode, which is the more what we, as I referred to earlier, the kind of presence, being present um, and living in the moment. That doesn't mean that we don't plan. It doesn't mean that we don't consider things and uh, keep a, keep a, a good eye on, on on what's going on in our life in terms of our work and everything. It's really about doing that with attention being wholly as best as possible in the present moment and really tasting the reality of our life in each moment. And what that kind of means is that we can go into any situation, either in doing mode, whether you're a doctor or you're a student, you can go into any situation in doing mode or being mode. You can still do the same activity, but you can do one with presence. You can do that activity with presence, or you can do it with a certain level of wanting to achieve outputs and outcomes and and really um, um, 
just pushing the agenda and maybe controlling the situation. Whereas in a lot of situations, particularly with patients, it requires a bit of a stepping back, a bit of taking that pause, being present and sharing that presence, say, with a patient, with a patient and uh, building that trust and mutual respect in that channel for communication, for example. So you're really listening to the patient. You're really paying attention to what they're saying, their body language. And in that way, you're taking a more, if you say, if you like, accurate reading of that person and maybe kind of humanizing them, looking more at the human in a more holistic, kind of sensitive and empathic way. If you're doing that in doing mode, for example, what you might be thinking about is um, the particular ailment that the patient has and wanting to get through that within the 15 minutes that you've allotted to that person um, in a consultation, for example. And so you kind of you miss that kind of sense of being present. You're just caught up in what we refer to sometimes as striving mode. We're kind of trying to keep completing tasks. So we're always thinking ahead um, rather than just putting the brakes on and really trying to be fully aware and fully awake to whatever we're experiencing, whoever it is with, whether it's a student in their education, whether it's working with patients in a GP practice or wherever or in a hospital or working with your team, really being fully there, fully awake and reading the situation and communicating with clarity. And that is also understanding what's going on in your mind, understanding how you feel within a situation, but also that broader situational awareness that you see other things going on. You're not so narrow in your thinking, and which can kind of blink you sometimes. To add to that, um, the doing mode tends to, I would argue, come from a kind of place of maybe slight anxiety or maybe stress where people feel pressure. They're starting to feel a bit overwhelmed, so they have to exert a certain level of control over their experience. But what that does, according to some of the research, is that it kind of impedes our executive functioning. It kind of narrows down and reduces our thinking. And so we don't have that sense of spaciousness to for clinical reasoning, for example, to really consider um, what's kind of going on, being able to know, have that metacognitive awareness, if you like, of what's going on in our mind, in our body, with our feelings. And this is a, a kind of key practice when you're teaching mindfulness or if you're a therapist, for example, you've got to learn to read your body as you're working with your client. You've got to know how you're feeling, how you're responding, what judgments might be coming to mind um, when you're talking to them and the biases, etc. So you can kind of hold those, hold those um, thoughts, biases, whatever they are, assumptions that you're making, put them to one side and just be present and communicate as accurately as you possibly can with the person, if you like. So I hope that answers a little bit of your question. Obviously, it's a really big topic, but um, does that help? Yeah, that does. Thank you. Michael, I wanted to um, just jump in on that point, if that's all right. Um, you've talked a lot about sort of clinical reasoning aspects there, certainly of, of in medical education, um, and you've chatted a little bit about metacognition and and things like that. When I was doing a little bit of research for this um, for this episode on mindfulness, a lot of the literature sort of overlapped mindfulness with the idea of dual process theory, so slowing down and your type two thinking rather than your type one. And certainly within clinical reasoning, I think 
certainly at an undergraduate level, we struggled to find good ways to teach clinical reasoning and certainly how to sort of assess it. And I wonder if there's a role for mindfulness there to teach it at its core and create a group of mindful practitioners and then hopefully in years to come through practicing mindfulness that they will be able to um, sort of inherently develop those metacognitive and clinical reasoning skills. I wonder if you, you had any thoughts about that. Yes, I do. Uh, thank you for bringing that question up. It's, it's quite an interesting um, um, point. I think this comes back to, um, in a way, what I think about myself as an educator. I, um, I have a kind of metaphor that's been quite enduring, and is that is that, and that is one of gardening, where the education process is about preparing the soil, preparing the context, the conditions, for which learning will sprout, if you like. And so it's more about not teaching people stuff, <laughs> information, or about algorithm rules whatever it's it's about preparing those conditions planting those seeds keep cultivating that soil so when students are ready that learning happens because the conditions are there <clears throat> when i apply that to kind of metacognition to, to reasoning i've done a lot of work in critical thinking my background is also in philosophy um i've always realized how actually to be able to to think with that broader perspective, to be aware of your own thinking, be aware of the feelings that are associated with your own thinking, requires quite a lot of training. And I think if you don't attend to that and attend to those conditioning, those conditions, you might find that actually it becomes quite difficult to, if you like, implant that next layer of learning, which are, are the kind of, you know, the, the the aspects and rules of clinical reasoning or whatever. Um, it's not an area that, you know, went in a huge amount of detail. I did a little pilot study on clinical reasoning and mindfulness at Newcastle University a while back with some colleagues. And really what came out of that was actually, it was about um, preparing those conditions within the mind. And um, so that it created that capacity and that clarity, um, that ability to distinguish between different types of thoughts, for example. So um, <clears throat> we talked about doing mode earlier on, and I think if you sometimes when you ask people to ex examine their own mind, it's full of clutter. The mind is just constantly secreting thoughts, are often quite random, quite repetitive a lot of the time, lots of old patterns of thought constantly coming up. Now, if you're trying to think through something and you've got all of this noise going on, it's really hard to distinguish between one thought and the other. So you're not quite sure what to prioritize in a particular situation because there's so many potential things arising. If you practice something like mindfulness, you might find that actually your mind settles down quite regularly to the point where sometimes it feels like sometimes you're not really thinking at all. And so you have a sense of spaciousness and awareness. And when the thoughts arise, you can almost kind of choose the thoughts that you want to, to continue to think about distinguish between what's important and what's not important and let the non-important and irrelevant thoughts just pass through and then pursue the ones that you think are actually important within a given situation and that will be also combined with how you feel and how those feelings inform those thoughts but also reading the situation reading the other person the other people all those listening skills, being able to see what's going on and really paying attention, all those holistic things are needed for that 
quality of thinking, I would say, to to happen rather than maybe quantity of what we do. It's more about the quality and that ability to kind of create those conditions. I, I think that works as a metaphor, but I don't know. It'd be nice to hear how you, how you respond to that. Yeah, no, I think I think that's brilliant. And I think, again, you know, it really speaks to sort of experiences I've had and experiences I'm seeing in students um, at the minute um, about, about sort of just just slowing things down and just trying to minimize your thought process and stay focused. Um, yeah, really, really interesting. Thank you. Just to add one more, one more thing to that as well. I think um, what helps with that is that you talk about slowing down um, and the dual processing um, approach. And <clears throat> what you'll find when you, if you practice mindfulness a lot, you feel like almost time slows down. You're not up against deadlines. There's not the sense of finiteness and, that things have to be done by this, that, and the other time. You're more um, taking each moment as it comes with awareness of the deadlines and the pressures, but not letting those deadlines and pressures affect what you do in the moment. And so there is a tendency when we're feeling a bit stressed, a bit pressured to speed up and to try and think things. Maybe you'll almost go back to the default, go back to the algorithm, you're you stop reading the situation and you fall back on the rules because you feel more comfortable there. Whereas, um, as I said earlier about leaning into the difficult, being able to think, but also stay with somebody suffering, for example, and still be able to communicate, stay with your own discomfort and, and the difficult feelings and still be able to function well, requires a kind of slowing down and a sense of really being with and being present and allowing all of those factors to be in place. Otherwise, we might, as, as I said earlier, about kind of fall into a reductionist way of thinking, um, which might lead to misdiagnosis, for example. <clears throat> That's so interesting to listen about. I hadn't, uh, slightly naively, I hadn't considered it, its, its importance in that clinical decision-making and the clinical reasoning element of our and our work and also as educators. I I wonder to sort of round up our conversation if you had any tips or resources that maybe for someone who like myself who hasn't really considered mindfulness in the clinical aspect of my life or or or, or maybe is new to mindfulness at all how can someone find out more or start being for more mindful Thank you for that question Firstly, what I would say about in response to that question was that I think we're still at quite early days with mindfulness in the field. Um, I think sometimes people think it's a fairly new phenomena, even though it's been around for thousands of years. Uh, I think sometimes people uh, misinterpret what it is, not quite sure what it is, or they see it as quite a simplistic thing. Um, I would say I've been doing this intensely for quite a long time, and I'm still learning a lot about it. Um, and it's a really deep practice. It's actually ultimately about life and how we can live our lives better. So it's, it has a kind of real personal effect as well as kind of effect on our professional life or relationships, etc. And so to do it, it requires a certain amount of readiness. So often when, say, if I was running a retreat, for example, um, people who come to those retreats tend to be 
in a moment in their life where they're ready to kind of do something like that. They've kind of been thinking about it. They've done bits and pieces here and there and they feel it's the right time. So, or if I'm doing a course, um, people come to that from their own volition. And so I think there's a certain importance of that one is ready and it's not imposed uh, on people. It's more of an invitation, if you like. And, um, and yes, there are lots of resources online. Um, there are apps now that you can use. And I think a lot of people are using them as their first way in to mindfulness. And I think they have a function and I think they play a really good role. Um, there's lots of things on YouTube and you'll find all kinds of different um, meditation practices <clears throat> from all fields um, on there. Some of them might resonate with you. Some of them may not. And yes, they're worth exploring. Um, but what I would say is if somebody wants to really do this well, that they do it, they get proper training in it, that it requires real guidance and reflection and a commitment to, to practice. So, for example, if I'm running an eight-week mindfulness-based stress reduction program that <clears throat> tends to involve eight, eight sessions of around an hour and a half, two hours, um, also a retreat, um, but also um, home daily practice for and reflection for all the participants around uh, for half an hour, an hour, but sometimes those courses demand about two hours per day. And that is encoupled <clears throat> um, with the guidance and the interaction and the ability for people to share their experiences from week to week within the sessions and do that within a group in a safe and supportive environment. And over that period of time, people are developing that habit they are, according to the research, they're changing neurologically. So they're developing that habit after eight weeks so they can go away and they can take that practice into their own lives in a more sustainable way. But even then, it's quite a difficult practice. You know, people have to do other things to try and kind of maintain it and build that motivation. So there's like a bit of a tipping point. I think what sometimes you get people coming along and they're, they're maybe a little bit skeptical, they're not quite sure. And maybe for three or four weeks, they're kind of, bit like folding their arms and think mm, not sure and then there's often a turning point they start seeing the benefits in their lives and then it's almost like a big shift happens and then they really get become motivated because they see it actually has real impact and it's, it's a very powerful thing and um <clears throat> yeah so it requires real careful training um some kind of persistence in terms of additional CPD or whatever you want to call it, practicing with others, practicing yourself regularly. Um, and that's what I would generally advise that. I think one of the things often people struggle with, and I, I say this all the time when I'm teaching, that people get off to a good start, have great intentions, a bit like going to the gym. After a little while, you know, <clears throat> they start missing that, uh, missing their practice. <clears throat> and sometimes, um, they beat themselves, beat themselves up a little bit about that. And that's not the point. It's okay not to do it, but then re-engage when you're ready. We always advise that actually, yeah, if you, if you come up with, you can always start again, you can always start to practice again. But <clears throat> if nobody's able to do that kind of, or hasn't, doesn't feel they've got the time to do a course, um, is this just start small, maybe a couple of minutes a day, maybe use the guidance from apps or from, uh, different guidance from online different teachers start small keep that kind of regularity up uh, small but regular and then maybe over time start to build that up and um, yeah and 
find maybe a teacher, find a group, find a course, find something at the point where you feel ready to and um, yeah, build it into your life. What tends to happen uh, is that often people say, and it's just like a lot of things, I don't have the time to do that. How can I set 45 minutes a day for meditation? Um, but what people often find is actually when they start doing that, they really enjoy setting that time aside because sometimes that's the only time they actually set aside for their own well-being. And that can often feel strange for people to actually give themselves permission to take care of themselves. And that is, in a way, a real problem. You know, why do people not feel like they can take care of themselves? Surely, particularly in healthcare practice, if you're being caring for others, you've got to understand, I think, how to care for yourself reasonably well. So you can be a real advocate for health and <clears throat> you can guide people in a way you know what helps you. you you can advise you can help you can refer um but yeah you can be a real advocate so i think it takes a while for people to get used to giving themselves permission but once they do um <clears throat> they find that actually they've got more time because they're not wasting time on on just watching a bit of telly or just whatever you know on facebook or, or whatever it is often people find the time and actually find it really valuable and uh, it just then it just becomes something that people just embrace. And it just becomes a bit like having your food every day or brushing your teeth. They're just integrated into their life. And you can do that, obviously, with practice at home, sitting on cushions, chair, whatever, doing that kind of personal meditation <clears throat> or movement meditation, yoga, all of these things are linked. Um, or you can integrate it into daily work and life. You can take those pauses before you go into a meeting. You can take care of a patient take a little bit of time out, resolve your time with that patient before you move to the next patient. Because what often people do is carry their previous experience into their next experience. So being able to put that first experience down and move into the next experience with what we would call a, a kind of fresh beginner's mind and, and, and bring themselves fully to that encounter um, is something that can be done without putting quite a lot of time aside for meditation. Or equally, if you're having a food or having a drink, you can just notice the sensations of lifting the glass, tasting the drink, the sensation of that in your body, or when you're walking, walking to work, walking around a ward or wherever you are, you can be aware of uh, your feet on the floor, your body movement, you can be aware of sounds around you. All of these sensations, opportunities, uh, or these moments are opportunities to re-engage mindfully with what's actually happening. So all of the sensations that we feel are in the present moment. Our thoughts are either in the past or future or just we're just off into some kind of fantasy a lot of the time. So we can use all of these sensations, no matter what we're doing, to anchor our attention at any given time. That's great. Thank you. Thank you um, so much for joining us, Michael. I have learned a huge amount. I think hopefully the listeners have really... Um been inspired from this chat a wee bit today because there were certainly anecdotes that, that Michael was talking about there or examples Michael was talking about that um, really resonated with me and actually there are opportunities for us on busy ward days to just take that um, take those few seconds to to slow things down and to you know maybe use that as a starting point or as an inspiration to start um, practicing mindfulness um, 
and yeah, really, really useful. Thank you very much, Michael. Thank you. My pleasure. It's been a joy to talk to you both. Thank you. Thank you again to Michael for joining us for this discussion. Um, if you've enjoyed today's episode, don't forget to rate, review and subscribe. Thank you for listening to Tasmi Time and we look forward to seeing you again soon. Thank you.